Hey, my name is Neil Rapley. I'm a researcher at Book of Mormon Central. I had a chance to sit down and answer some questions from our Facebook group, Come Follow Me Lessons, Teach, Learn, Share. We wanted to share these answers here as well and invite you to join us on Facebook to learn about more great resources to help with your Come Follow Me study this year. Again, that's the Facebook group, Come Follow Me Lessons, Teach, Learn, Share. Now, I hope you enjoy. All right, welcome to another uh, edition or uh, another week, I guess, of uh, me trying to answer your uh, Come Follow Me uh, questions. I say trying, of course, because as you know, sometimes I don't have a good answer and I just uh, give you some thoughts and, and give you the best that I can. But this week, uh, I think I'm going to do okay. Uh, <laughs> anyway, before I get started, uh, let's go ahead and uh, do the usual disclaimer. The answers given in this video do not represent the official position of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, uh, Book of Mormon Central, the Come Follow Me Teach Learn Share Facebook group, and since they're somewhat off the cuff, they really don't even represent my official views. Uh, lots of these are things I did a little research on, uh, came up with an answer. There's a lot more that uh, I could do to dig in, and maybe I would change my mind if I did that. So, um, so yeah, don't hold this to me like 20 years down the road. Uh, and I also just want to give a reminder, I'm not going to answer every question most weeks uh, that's been asked to me, and there's a variety of reasons for that. Usually it's just because of time constraints, uh, and that may be because I don't have a lot of... Oh, excuse me, I bumped the mic. That may be because I don't have a lot of time personally to uh, to dedicate to uh, to digging into some of these questions uh, on some weeks. It may be because there's too many questions, and so I just have to be more selective. Um, sometimes it might be because of the questions being asked would require... Uh, do require uh, more investment and more research on my part, and so I can only answer a few of them, or uh, or maybe there's a question or two that I spent a lot of time digging into, and and uh, so I don't have time to do uh, deal with some of the other ones. Uh, other times there's questions that I know would take too much time uh, on my part, and I don't have you know it, it would just take more time than I have to dedicate to to just answering that one question, so I have to leave it out. Um, there's other factors as well. I'm usually not going to answer questions that ask me to make moral judgments or uh, uh, decide whether something or other is a sin or, or whatever or or tell you when I think the second coming is going to happen or whether we're prepared for it or, or whatever the case may be. Uh, I don't. I generally don't deal with those kinds of questions. I'm looking to answer questions specifically about uh, our our uh, passages that are in our Come Follow Me. Uh, section. Um, so if you aren't asking questions about those, I'm also usually going to uh, just kind of skip on past those. So uh, with that uh, reminder there, I've only got a few questions this time uh, that I was able to get to. Uh, so this may not be very long, uh, but uh, but here we go. Uh, this one was technically asked last week from Michael Christensen on uh, Mosiah 4. The uh, he asks, in Mosiah 4, the people moved by the king's speech verbally ask for remission of sins, which they receive in abundance by the Spirit. Were they baptized? Or is baptism not the exclusive means of receiving remission of sins? If not, why not? If so, why must we be baptized for the remission of sins? Um, this is a good question, uh, and it, it's a question that leads into a lot of uh, some of the debates around baptism in the Book of Mormon. Some people... Uh, if you'll remember, going all the way back to the beginning of the Book of Mormon, um, 
uh, actually just before the beginning of the Book of Mormon, the very first week when we talked about some other things and, and talking about the translation process and things like that, uh, the, and in fact, I might have even mentioned this last week because I think someone had a question about the beginning of Mosiah, but the order of translation was such that Mosiah was translated first and then it goes on to the end of the Book of Mormon and then Joseph and Oliver go back and they translate the, uh, small plates to make up for the lost pages that uh, Martin Harris lost. Um, and so some people point out that, uh, this is really kind of the beginning of the Book of Mormon, uh, as, as it was dictated by Joseph Smith. And some people who don't believe it's actually ancient and historical will point out the absence of baptism here is suggestive that the original story before it was lost didn't include baptism until you get to Alma 18 and, uh, that Joseph Smith forgot that and then retroactively put baptism in during the time of Nephi. Uh, like I said, that's what some people who, who say that Joseph Smith is kind of making it all up would think. And, uh, so they point to the absence of baptism here in, in Benjamin's speech as evidence of that. Um, I wouldn't jump to those conclusions though, especially since, um, well, obviously I don't, I don't, uh, come to those conclusions. One of the reasons some people do though, is because when Alma baptizes in the waters of Mormon, it kind of seems like this new thing. Um, he even has to baptize himself sort of by going underwater with Helam in, in Mosiah 18. And we'll probably get that. And I might even get questions about that when we get to that section. So I won't go into that all now necessarily, but the point is the absence of baptism here is kind of an interesting question that, uh, leads th that some people even use as evidence against the book of Mormon. I don't think it, uh, it really is for one thing, um, a few chapters after Mosiah 18, we have Limhi asking Ammon, not Ammon, the missionary to the Lamanites, but Ammon, who was a descendant of Zarahemla, who was sent to find the people of Limhi. Um, he asks him if he can baptize them. And Ammon says, oh no, I am not worthy. Um, I suspect that what he means by not worthy is that he is not someone who is called and set apart with the proper authority to do that. And uh, there's some interesting questions about priest authority and things like that, which starts to become really clear. Uh, we start to understand priesthood authority and structure in the Book of Mormon best as we get into these chapters in Mosiah and then in Alma and, and things like that is where these sorts of issues of priesthood and authority come up. Uh, but he says he doesn't, you know, he doesn't feel worthy. He's not authorized, but he doesn't seem to not know what baptism is. And so Ammon, who came from the land of Zarahemla, uh, shortly after the reign of Benjamin seems to know what baptism is. He just doesn't, he's not, he doesn't have the proper priesthood authority to perform baptism. So, um, he probably feels like he's got to have authorization from Mosiah, uh, at the time. So he, uh, so, so it seems they did know about baptism in the land of Zarahemla. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it's not mentioned here in the text. Maybe there was baptisms performed in association with all of, uh, the other ritual and ceremony going on around King Benjamin's speech. And it's just not mentioned. Uh, but there's some other possibilities worth considering, especially in relation to your question dealing with remission of sins. Um, in second Nephi 31, 17, it actually says for the gate by which he should enter is repentance and baptism by water. Okay. And then cometh a remission of your sins by fire and by the Holy Ghost. And so remission of sins in the Book of Mormon is something that follows baptism, but 
it comes by uh, receiving the Holy Ghost, the baptism of fire. Um, and in Mosiah 4.3, we are actually told the spirit of the Lord came upon them and they were filled with joy, having received a remission of their sins. And so uh, since the Book of Mormon actually associates remission of sins coming from the baptism of fire, receiving the Holy Ghost, and the people did receive the spirit of the Lord, and that's when it says they received a remission of sins, um, I think what would maybe make the most sense to me is that baptism for most of these people has already happened. These are not uh, new converts, if you will, um, but uh, most of these people I think have already been baptized. This is probably a festival context with the, with the ancient Israelite festivals. We talked about that uh, last week. Um, and so this is probably, uh, those sorts of festivals are typically covenant renewals, right? Uh, they are renewing the covenant that uh, they made a year ago before when they, uh, when they were gathered for this festival before that and goes back the year before that and year before that and on and on and on. When it comes to the Israelites themselves, they're going back to original covenants made at, you know, at Mount Sinai with, um, with Moses and, and things like that in a lot of these ceremonies. Um, with the Nephite people, they're, they're coming, they're drawing from their Israelite heritage. So they're going back to those covenants, uh, obviously, but there's also, you know, the founding covenants that Nephi kind of institutes in first and second Nephi. Um, and, uh, really Jacob, uh, with his speech in, uh, second Nephi six through 10, which appears to be the first, uh, you know, coronation festival, uh, among the Nephites, that's probably the foundation of, of their ritual and their covenants, uh, their unique Lehite or Nephite covenants. Um, but there's probably already been baptisms that have been performed for a lot of these people. Uh, most of them are adults. Maybe there were children and, and kids who, who got baptized in conjunction with this afterwards or, or whatever the case may be. Um, but I don't think that most of the people needed to be baptized. They were already baptized. They're renewing covenants like we do with the sacrament. And, uh, and so there's not a need to be rebaptized in order to have that spirit, the spirit come and, uh, provide remission of sin for them in this case. Um, uh, the, uh, another comparison in addition to the sacrament would be the temple, right? We go to the temple and we make, uh, we make additional covenants in addition to what we covenant at baptism, but those really are for the most part, they're amplifications of the, the original covenant we make at baptism. There's a lot of overlap and a lot of relationships there. And uh, a lot of people have compared the Israelite festivals to um, uh, temple. They take place at the temple. There's a temple context here and, and the people have gathered around the temple. And so this is also maybe comparable to what we do in the temples where we, uh, we make and renew covenants and uh, and we see we receive promised blessings, but we don't have to get rebaptized unless we're doing baptism for the dead. That's obviously a different sort of issue though. Um, anyway, those are just some of my thoughts on that. I don't know how they align with your thoughts, uh, or what the case may be. Um, but if you want more information on baptism in the book of Mormon and, and, uh, its relationship to remission of sins and things like that, there's actually a paper by Noel B. Reynolds, Understanding Christian Baptism Through the Book of Mormon. We have it in the Book of Mormon Central Archive. You can go there, check it out. Uh, it's also, it's, it was published by BYU Studies, so it's also available on the BYU Studies website. Um, okay. Uh, Chris Reeve asked, um, are verses 12 through 16 in chapter four referring to a more outward manifestations of 
the change, you know, the uh, the mighty change of heart or, or whatever the case may be, uh, you know, being born of, um, uh, being born again and, and the like, or are they more invitations to implement such a change? Uh, what are some of the literary responses to this passage? Um, I would personally suggest it's actually kind of both, uh, you know, reading through that and it, it's talking about the kind of behaviors that, uh, that those who have, um, who have had this change overcome them will do the, the caring for the poor and the things like that in particular. Um, and I think it's really, I, I really do think there's not really a, this is kind of a chicken and an egg kind of situation. There's not a neat and tidy way to say, um, inner desire changes and that's what changes our actions versus we change what we do and how we live and that changes our desires. There's a cyclical effect here and, uh, it's kind of, a, a both and rather than an either or, uh, sometimes it, you know, we go through inner transformations. We're born again and we feel no desire to do evil and, and, and we, we want to change. We, we, we no longer want to do things and, and gratify our sins and things like that. And, um, and we want to do other things that are more wholesome and uplifting and all kinds of things like that. And, uh, and that inner change motivates the behavior and it just becomes second nature to us to change that behavior that happens to us sometimes. And that also sometimes wears off, right? I think the born again kind of thing usually has to happen a few times in a person's life, uh, maybe a lot of times in a person's life, uh, before it starts to stick. And even then, like I've had some, some things uh, of my own, uh, you know, in my own life, I've had some desires that have changed and those changes have been absolutely lasting. I've had other instances where for a while I don't want to, you know, do X, Y, or Z, bad behavior, or for a while I feel really motivated to do X, Y, and Z good behavior, but it doesn't last very long and eventually it wears off and I, I relapse into bad habits and things like that. So, um, so it can be a, a perpetual process. Um, but, uh, but yeah, sometimes the inner desire changes and our behavior follows suit. Other times, um, we maybe don't desire to do good or righteous things all the time, but if we make a concerted effort to make the right choices and to change our behavior over time, that can change, uh, who we are internally. We can, um, eventually, uh, you know, uh, fake it till we make it right. <laughs> I know that's, that's maybe not the best way to put it, but, uh, that's kind of the idea. Brigham Young, uh, I don't have the exact source off the top of my head, but Brigham Young talked about how, uh, we can, you know, he, he said, if you don't feel like praying, get on your knees and pray until you do, right? And that is, I, I think, a true principle, right? Sometimes if you don't feel like living a certain way, you don't feel like helping others, you don't feel like doing the things you're supposed to be doing, sometimes doing it is what you got to do anyway, and the desire will come. Uh, you know, I, I can tell you how many, I, I can't tell you how many times as a teenager, I didn't want to go do whatever service project my bishop or uh, my young men's leaders had cooked up for us, but my parents made me go, right? And so I go begrudgingly and I end up having a good time and I end up enjoying it and I actually end up desiring to be there and to help and I see the positive impact and effect it has. And so, um, so I think there's kind of, it goes both ways and it helps perpetuate one another. 
even as our desire to do good things slips, if we continue to maintain that behavior, uh, it can help renew our desire to keep behaving, uh, to, to, to keep doing that. Um, and uh, yeah, like I said, sometimes I think uh, that there is value in um, in doing it and and having that cultivate that desire in you. Um, in fact, there are studies, I, I can't cite them off the top of my head, but there are sociological studies that have kind of shown that people who choose to act like the kind of person they wish they were, even if it's not really who they are yet, people who who just choose to act that way and make a concerted effort to act that way, eventually real lasting changes uh, start to stick and they they begin to transition into becoming that kind of person. So there is, uh, th- there is something to be said for changing the outward uh, behavior that can transform your desires. There's also something to be said for having your desires transformed and that changing your outward behavior and kind of the cyclical uh, relationship there. So I would say it's both, um, and, uh, and we need to try and be doing both and implementing both all the time, changing our hearts, but also changing, uh, how we act and how we behave and, and, you know, working on rejecting bad habits and, and sins and things like that and, uh, and replacing those with good and righteous behaviors. Uh, all right, last, uh, last question. It's actually Two different people asking a very similar question, so I'm going to treat it together. But Chris Reeve asked, what does it mean when in chapters 4, uh, verses 2 and 3, and chapter 5, verses 2 through 5, it says they cried aloud with one voice. What are some helpful ways to think about such uh, responses that seem spontaneous, voluntary, and collective? And then from last week, James Wright, uh, uh, also he quoted from chapter 5, 1 through 6, um, and then, uh, ha- you know, ask the question, having been in larger crowds, attempting to say something in unison, the Pledge of Allegiance, for example, um, I know how difficult it is to say even a few words with one voice, let alone something so lengthy and formal. How do you believe this may have played out? Was the desired response published in advance for the people to read from? Was this a familiar ritual and uh, the people had performed variations previously? Was this a miraculous, spirit-fueled response where the words were given to all in the very moment? Uh, Was this a historical retelling that is accurate in the essentials uh, but embellished after the fact uh, for added impressiveness by the scribes? Um, And he kind of suggests maybe an alternative to what happened uh, that would have been embellished, like maybe they said, you've seen the covenant I want you to enter into, do you consent? And then the people just in unison say yes. Um, This feels like a ritual covenant to me among the Romans. Ritual was practiced, uh, so it went well on the day, and if it didn't go well but was meant to, the record was frequently cleaned up. That's uh, the end of uh, my quotation from James right there. Uh, So a lot of interesting possibilities here. Uh, James actually, I think, pretty well covers the bases as to what uh, the possibilities are. Um, just a few comments on my part. Uh, one comparison that actually, uh, Brant Gardner emailed to me, uh, uh, after seeing, uh, I think Chris's question, uh, was that spontaneous, you know, there, there's spontaneous chance that you'll hear it like political rallies or maybe it's sporting events. Um, you know, think of, uh, not that I want to get too particularly political, but the one that comes to mind fairly readily because of uh, the most recent, uh, well, the 2016 election cycle, 
and it was kind of controversial was the lock her up chants at uh, Trump rallies. You know, those usually weren't planned. They were quite spontaneous, but everyone got into them. Uh, naturally, these kind of chants, though, they're short. They, they're pretty rhythmic. They, uh, they're pretty easy for everyone to kind of get lock in step with. Um, but the, the point is, this kind of thing can happen, and uh, uh, it's possible that uh, maybe what happened here was there were some people kind of planted throughout the audience who did know what was supposed to be said, who at the proper times prompted the rest of the people and the people kind of followed along with what they were saying. Uh, I don't know. That's just a, a possibility. I do think, as James uh, Wright suggested, that this is a ritual or ceremonial occasion. Um, so while it's made to seem spontaneous as the record is recorded, um, and I don't want to doubt uh, the sincerity, of the, the spontaneous sincerity that, that, they, that maybe came upon the people and, and the feeling, the, the overcoming from the spirit and things like that, um, it's possible that the people may have known or been familiar with the words of the covenant in advance. Uh, and so they did know something of what they were supposed to say um, and had perhaps even performed the ritual previously and so knew something of what was supposed to be said. Uh, still, as James points out, Sometimes it's hard to do it all in unison all the time. People saying the Pledge of Allegiance, uh, they get out of sync with each other. Just in a classroom, a, a school classroom of, of 30 people, let alone thousands of people like uh, King Benjamin is hosting. But I imagine most of, like if I were telling people about my experience in high school growing up and uh, how, you know, every morning or every other morning, however often, I think we did it once a week, whatever it was. I, I told them about how, yeah, once a week we'd say the Pledge of Allegiance. I wouldn't say we tried to say it in unison, but we were all sorts of off. I would just say, yeah, we, we would all say the Pledge of Allegiance together. Um, and so whether the people perfectly performed in unison or not, it's, of course, not surprising that the record would say they all said this together. They all said this in one voice, as it says, um, even if there was, you know, some... Uh, some out of, even if the people were somewhat out of sync as they said it, for instance. Um, so I don't have any problem with that. I actually kind of like James's idea that uh, maybe there was uh, some literary embellishment to the effect of just being asked, be, being read the covenant and being asked if they consented to it. And then since they all said, yes, we consent to it, as the written record was, they just put those words right in the people's mouths. That's actually an interesting idea. I'd never considered that. I haven't explored it. I don't know how likely it is. It aligns kind of nicely with uh, with some things we do in uh, in the temple today, and I won't go into that in any further detail. But uh, but I don't know how well it, it matches um, any ancient practices, um, or in comparison rather to uh, the crowd of people actually saying the ritual uh, and, and performing you know, saying the whole ritual phrases and, and uh, covenant, which I think is more consistent with, uh, with what we see in antiquity. Uh, but anyway, all of those are some interesting possibilities. <clears throat> um, and, uh, I don't know, I don't know exactly how it played out, but, uh, but it's, it's true. It probably did not play out perfectly where everyone absolutely perfectly and immaculately uh, and spontaneously recited the exact same words unprompted. There, there, there was probably some kind of prompting, some kind of expectation, some kind of uh, previous knowledge, a combination of all those things. 
uh, are probably all in play here. As I mentioned earlier, I see this as likely a covenant renewal, so they're probably, they know what the covenant is and, and they have some familiarity with it. But anyway, um, that is all my questions. As usual, I would recommend, uh, if you haven't already, download Scripture Plus uh, on your iPhone or Android device, or uh, I think we also have it in the Kindle store now. So, uh, you know... Um, you know, download that uh, to help you dig even further into uh, these, uh, um, excuse me, download that so that you can dig in even further into your scripture study, uh, both this week and every week going forward uh, as you study your Come Follow Me. Um, and with that, uh, I hope you guys have a good weekend. Thanks.